Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest today is Will Hild. He is the executive director of Consumers Research, consumersresearch.org, which is the oldest uh, consumer organization in America. Will, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, I, I just think it's marvelous that Consumers Research is taking on the issue of um, ESG investing because it is a consumer issue. Right. I mean, you, you, you associate consumers research and other consumers organization with is this car safe? It, you know, am I paying too much for this product? Is this food that I'm buying adulterated with other uh, ingredients? And it seems to me when we're talking about investments, essentially, we're we're asking a consumer question. Is this product safe? Is is what I'm buying adulterated with other ingredients? And am I paying too much? Uh, and I think you have some thoughts about each of those questions when it comes to uh, ESG investing. Absolutely. And you're 100% correct. In fact, this is really a consumer issue in more than just one way. So there is obviously the consumers of financial services. So for example, your average retail investor or someone with a 401k who might be considering ESG products because they've heard the sales pitch that's been made that they are have higher returns or that they accomplish some sort of, of good in the world. And I think there's a real issue there uh, with, to your point about, you know, can I actually trust this product? And the answer, you know, the short version is no, you can't. Uh, much of this is, is lies uh, and chicanery. But also the net effect of ESG investing takes the focus of the average you know, corporation away from serving consumers. So even if somebody who's not like invested in Coca-Cola, they uh, are hurt by Coca-Cola's focus on woke politics and woke activists and woke politicians rather than trying to come up with you know, new and better products or improve upon the products that they have, or in this day and age where we have inflation, you know, increasing, trying to manage the price increases that they're having to, to do their products. And we've seen this, you know, most recently with Silicon Valley Bank being closed over the weekend. Um, that was a bank that was famously uh, woke, famously focused on ESG. Mm-hmm. They had an A rating in the MSCI uh, ESG rating system. And yet, what was the one thing you want a bank to do that they didn't do, which is protect their depositors? Not money. have a run on the bank. That's like exactly. That's kind of exactly. Like, kind Make of sure the, that the your money is there the, when you need it. Yes, right. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, certainly, it's worth taking a look at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, you know, I've I've read some suggestions that they had um, ESG products in their portfolio, which were unsound. I'm kind of skeptical about that claim. Because the balance sheet of banks would be overwhelmingly treasury bonds. Um, so, may, look, this thing's going to be broken open and we're going to see inside, right? And we're going to see whether they bought things that were highly risky uh, with bad yields but they, because they had good ESG ratings. Could be. Um, but 
it seems to me that's not the strongest version of the case. The strongest version of the case is managerial distraction, uh, that you had a chief risk officer uh, who's, you know, who starts off her bio with queer person of color from working class background, right? Not with here are my qualifications <laughs> when it comes to risk assessment. Um, and, you know, and from the bank from the top to the bottom seem to be fairly focused on this kind of political posturing. Well, that, take up, that takes up time, that takes up energy, um, and that, that's focus that doesn't go to actual risk management. You're 100% right. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank wasn't that they you know, invested exclusively into things that could be generally considered woke or far left or virtue signaling. They did more than most banks do. I think they, they bragged that they financed like 62% of of solar projects in the United States. It's certainly more involvement in sort of so-called green technology boondoggles than the average bank would be. But I, I agree, really what happened to them is they didn't manage their portfolio well and, and they were borrowing short and loaning long. Exactly. But it gets to the point where, and, and this is really what our argument is on ESG, it's not just that some of the things that they do are inherently bad, like, uh, you know, race and sex you know, quotas on boards where we're discriminating against people for hiring and, and promotion. Those things are inherently bad. But then they lead to second order effects, like taking your eye off the ball. And to That's your point, it. the Daily Mail reported that the chief investment, uh, uh, chief risk management officer at that bank hadn't done a stress test of their bank's portfolio in nine months because she'd been too busy planning uh, like lesbian day of visibility parades and, and that kind of thing. And, so and so you're exactly and, right. So it's not it's right. not so much the investments themselves. It's that you're not focused on on delivering quality management to the company. Yeah. So because I don't want us to set ourselves up so that when, you know, the record, report comes out and it wasn't ESG investments that sank them, therefore the right is misrepresenting. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that the, the, the timing of, of assets and liabilities and being ultra long, long-term treasuries, which got absolutely crushed, um, you know, is what did them in. But I guess the way I'm thinking of this is, yeah, they probably made a lot of foolish, politically motivated investment, but the most foolish investment they made was the investment of their own time and attention on non-core issues. Because I got to tell you, my mom knew that interest rates were going up. <laughs> my retired mom, you know, my retired social worker mom would call me and say, Jerry, I hear interest rates are going to go up. What should I do? So if you've got a chief risk officer who's long, you know, long-term treasuries, uh, which get crushed during a high interest rate environment, you got somebody who, as you put it, has taken their eye off the ball. 100%. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. The, the real malinvestment was in their time and attention. And that isn't that emblematic of, you know, we talk about ESG um, as the problem, as actually sort of a branding as a subproblem of all forms of stakeholderism rather than shareholderism. Anything that says we don't own exclusive obligation to the customer who is the investor um, in the case of investments or the customer is the depositor in the case of a bank. Anything that dilutes that 
um, is the and that's the that's the dragon or that's the hydra we're fighting. And ESG is just the area in which certain investment firms try to impose that agenda using proxy votes or whatever. But let's say BlackRock went out of business. We we still have the problem of corporations themselves who take on a stakeholder model. So, you know, the problem here is essentially fiduciary duty or the dilution of fiduciary duty. Do you agree with that? You're 100% correct. That That is exactly right. And I will say this, this, this so-called stakeholder model, uh, which for your listeners, if they're not familiar, is this idea that corporate, it sounds nice, the corporations owe a duty not just to their shareholders, They'll throw in consumers, which we would agree with, but also their you know vendors, their employees. All of this is true at some level. Polar bears, but, right? But 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 what ends up happening? It it becomes the stalking horse for people to put in whatever priorities they want because you can always point to some area and say, well, some of my employees. For example, I'll take take a, uh, an example of a company we've targeted for campaigns: American Airlines. Mm-hmm. When we attacked them uh, for for their woke pandering. A couple of years ago, they had been rated routinely the worst airline in America by Wall Street Journal. They lost the most bags. They kicked the most pay, uh, people off of flights involuntarily. They'd also not been great to their employees after taking bailout money to keep people employed. The day that that deal ended with the federal government, and, and when they had agreed to keep these people on, they laid off 19,000 people. Um, and yet they had still uh, given their then CEO, Doug Parker, a 10 uh, figure, uh, excuse me, eight figure plus, $10 million plus paycheck the same year that they took a $4.5 billion taxpayer-funded bailout. Hmm. Now, three months later, Doug Parker is out there using American Airlines, the brand, not just himself, but the idea that the company opposed election integrity legislation moving through Texas. Hmm. Now, and, and he claimed, the, the part of the justification he used for that is, I, I have employees coming to me, at, you know, really wanting me to, to stand up to this. And that's really what the stakeholder model becomes. You know, here's a guy who was mistreating his consumers, mistreating his shareholders, mistreating his staff. But when he wanted to insert his personal politics, he was able to claim that he was doing so not for his own you know, justifications or his own personal interests, but because he was just doing what his employees demanded of him. And that's really what the stakeholder model. You could always go to some group and say, a few of my employees came to me, or a few of my vendors came to me, or some of, my consu- or, uh, some of our consumers are demanding this. And you can use it to justify insane misuses of corporate assets and goodwill and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a really a great a great point about the stakeholder model because if the, if the CEO works for the board and the board works for the shareholders, that's pretty simple, right? Uh if you do something that's against our interest, um if the if the CEO does something against our interest, then the board should fire the CEO. And if the board doesn't fire the CEO, then the shareholders should fire the board. You know, but if you have a stakeholder model then what that really means is not that the CEO has more bosses, but that the CEO has no boss whatsoever. Because on any given day, they can decide which stakeholder they want to answer to. So it's so fascinating to see the left pushing this model because it is such a transfer of power to CEOs. It's unlike anything in the history of capitalism in terms of transferring power away from, say, retirees, to CEOs, it's CEO empowerment. It makes them essentially self-governing because they're deciding which stakeholder they answer to today. That, that's a great point and a great way of putting it. You're right. They don't, go, they don't go to having more bosses. They go to having no boss because they can always claim 
that if, if they're doing something and the board doesn't like it or the shareholders don't like it, that they're somehow basically being persecuted for, for you know, being such a nice guy, effectively, or standing up for, for their own for important values or something like that. And what's funny is you often see one of the things that, that goes along with this is that it, it becomes a refuge for charlatans. So you've got companies like Nike and Coca-Cola, again, at, at the same time that they're going woke, and Nike in particular, you know, hiring Colin Kaepernick to accuse the NFL of effectively being a slave trade uh, in his Netflix special. And yet we know from congressional, uh, for, from research put out by Congress, uh, that both of those companies are benefiting significantly from forced labor in China producing their product. So it, it really is a way for them to distract. And one of the things that we've always, we've often seen that goes hand in hand with companies that are going woke is they usually have a bunch of skeletons in their closet that they're trying to distract from. And that the, the wokeism allows them to, to distract from real problems that they have. So again, we're not against, obviously, we, 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 you, know, you know, we're not against people treating their employees well, treating their vendors well. We certainly want them to treat their consumers well. But when they can use that, sort of quote, stakeholder model to get away from actually doing any of those things, because they can always point to some other priority that they come up with at a time. And we believe that the, the shareholder uh, idea of fiduciary duty actually ties you to doing a good job, because if you get caught in, in, in most circumstances, if you get caught using forced labor in China, it's, it's really bad for your business. So you need to figure out a way not to do that. Mm. But this wokeism allows them this weird cheat where they distract from those types of problems and don't solve them. Yeah, it's almost. Um, uh, sorry, I, 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 I interrupted you. Please finish. No, no, no that was it. That was it. It's, it's almost like um, not to step on anyone's toes religiously, but in the late Middle Ages, they had this thing called indulgences, right? So you could go out and do all sorts of terrible things, but there are certain things you could do that would essentially, you know, buy you moral credit. And so, you know, I've wondered so often. It seems like. The CEOs that are most fronting ESG, virtue signaling, et cetera, are, they're not average in their treatment of employees and suppliers. They're below average. They're, they're, so it's, it's not like, oh, because on the surface, you might think, oh, they talk about that so much. They must be great. Right. Or, oh, well, maybe they just talk in their average because that would be the statistical expectation. But, you know, when Mark Benioff went, went out there um, and said, look, I, because of my employees, I can't be doing business. I'm, 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 I'm kind of I'm not quoting. I'm, I'm summarizing, paraphrasing. I can't be doing business in places where there weren't equality. He had been asked about the reversal of Roe versus Wade um, because why? Because of my employees. Well, he just dumped tens of thousands of employees. I mean, they went fast. <laughs> so did he really love his employees or not? Or did he just <laughs> did he just use this stuff to, you know, signal a, a respect for employees that he doesn't actually practice in reality? Yeah, and I think you might be more right about the indulgences than you even realize, because one of, you know, in ESG, the E stands for environment. And you'd think that that would be all about preventing, like, the kinds of things that are, you know, just happened in Ohio, um, for example. Really, all the E comes down to is what they call net zero targets, right? And um, they're pushing, you know, publicly traded utilities to close power plants. They're pushing um, Exxon and Chevron to get out of the oil business. But there's some industries, for example, that they're never going to be able to be net zero in their actual operations. For example, you can't, it is 
all but physically impossible to fly a plane on lithium ion batteries because there's just there's batteries weigh so much you right. never get off the ground right? Right, right so what those what they're pushing those airlines to do by the way is literally to buy indulgences so they go to these uh companies that so supposedly uh you know provide carbon credits you can offset the carbon of your operations nice. but even no less than i mean it, it, no friend of ours of course but john oliver even in his show has has you know lampooned the nonsense he went in and did a deep dive into how ridiculous some of these companies are i mean you're paying people to not cut down trees that they weren't going to cut down anyway and and, and that's considered a, a carbon credit and so to your point about you know the medieval indulgences um just like there was a ton of abuse in that area where you, you know in that in that in religious sense where you'd have people you know basically extorting uh uh peasants uh for for you know money uh, based on guilt, you basically have the same thing going on in this, because supposedly in the environment space. And to make matters even worse, to your point about it being a distraction, often other environmental issues are completely disregarded in ways that if, if we didn't have this weird focus right. on net zero exclusively, they probably wouldn't be. So, for example, uh, electric electric vehicles, there's uh, cobalt is required. Most of the battery is lithium, but a ton of it is required to be cobalt for the battery to work. And right now, the main wave source we have for cobalt is these really horrible open pit mines in the Congo that are staffed, which is, I put that in scare quotes, by un under, basically not paid or underpaid child slaves, um, African child slaves. And very few, very little attention is, is, um, is paid to that social and environmental cost to these electric vehicles, but yet they get high ESG ratings because they're quote unquote net zero. Yeah. So I think I think the indulgence uh, analogy actually works very well. Yeah, I, I, I think the only difference is um, whether you're doing your offset to save your ancestors from burning or your descendants from burning. Uh, but either way, you know, someone you love is going to burn unless you do this, right? Um, right. So, uh, so you know, that's interesting about the cobalt um, so I, I, I sit in on a lot of annual meetings, um, do a lot of proxy voting in annual meetings, um, and you deal with the proxy services a lot. And it's fascinating because I've seen calls for um, proposals on ballots to look at cobalt mining in the supply chain for electric vehicles. Um, started out with, there was a proposal for Exelon, I think, uh, last year, and I talked to them about it. And... These, the ESG groups, the, the As You Sow, silent. Uh, ISS, against. F, all these groups that never, you know, never found a supply chain disclosure that they didn't like. Where We have to go, and if someone's done business in Saudi Arabia, we need to uncover it because of journalism. You know, maybe that's a good idea, maybe it's a bad idea. I don't know, but they love supply chain audits, except electric vehicle supply chain audits where we actually have credible evidence of child labor in carcinogenic open mines. And that tells you, you know, the, the, somebody's getting bought one way or the other. You know, this doesn't seem to be a genuine attempt to actually deal with supply chain issues. Yeah, I completely agree. And you're right. They fetishize so-called transparency when it comes to their pet issues. So like one of the things that they will often say is we are not forcing net zero targets on companies. We're just asking them to tell us where they are in their, in their 
net in their journey to net zero, which is a little bit like if my wife said, I'm not telling you to lose weight, but I would like you to tell me what your, uh, what your plan is to get to 150 pounds and where you're at right now on that plan. Right. That's so right. It, it, obviously, it, you know, you know what the, the carrot and the stick is there if you don't, if you don't go along with it, but you're right. If you try to, you know, ask for any other kind of transparency that doesn't fit into their progressive left worldview, they will try to vote it down. As you sow, the far left shareholder right. proposal group right. will, will stay silent on it. ISS, the shareholder proxy advising services will vote against it. BlackRock will vote against it. And you often see this. So it, it is very clear. They, they claim this is all neutral and it's just about transparency. But then, you know, it's, it's very obvious what they're targeting. And they've even gone so far. I mean, this is how extreme it's gotten. There is a lot of shareholder proposals where they want to know if you've ever given to a political candidate or a trade association or a C4 or a yes. C3 yes. that doesn't share the net zero targets of the company. So what they're basically trying to say is are, they're trying to gag any kind of speech that would come out of the target company that would oppose them and their hegemonic supremacy on this issue. Yeah, it's so the, it's, it's very clear. This is a this is a megalomaniac, uh, a megalomaniacal, I should say, uh, maybe both. Idea. They do not want any dissent on this issue. <laughs> yes, and um, I mean these are defund the right bills, right? And it's really fascinating right. again that that the the hypocrisy on the issue of disclosure, because these same groups that want to disclose lobbying expenses and members of trade associations, they're trying to go after American Legislative Exchange Council, for example, or Competitive Enterprise Institute, or even the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and But they, the same groups oppose charitable contribution disclosures, which, you know, conservatives want that. Largely, it started with, we want to know whether you're giving money to Planned Parenthood. More recently, it's we want to know whether you're giving to the BLM Foundation and buying someone a $22 million house uh, and siding with Hamas with our shareholder money. But again, the disclosure crowd wants them to confess to their sin of supporting organizations which have a pro-business agenda. In other words, if someone's giving to ALEC, they, there's probably a pretty good business reason for that. Like they're, they're going to help you um, in states, like maybe you're a retailer um, and you want to keep property taxes under control. All right. It seems to me if you're a retailer, if you're doing politics like you're dealing with property taxes or sales taxes, that's a core business issue, right? So, But you have to stop doing that. That's, that's no good. But we don't really care whether you give money to Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's not just... It's not just randomly wrong. It's the inversion of right. That's 100% correct. So these shareholder proposals, for example, are phrased to only uh, have transparency around giving to, to their political enemies. So it's not really about transparency. It's about being able to target these organizations. And I, for your listeners, this is kind of an interesting, and for anyone in corporate America who's listening, let me just warn you how, how careful you have to be with these people. A lot of these companies agreed to some sort of very vague net zero target that's 30 years down the line, thinking this will get them off my back. Yes. Okay. And I, I can just move on. I'll tell them, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. In three decades, we'll get to that. Well, that's what they're pointing to when they do these shareholder proposals. So they'll say, have you given to, we want to see anytime you've given to candidates or organizations that don't share your net zero target policy. So they're claiming you've made a commitment to something and we want to see if your if your political giving or your associational giving is in line with that target. So if you think you're going to be able to get these people off your backs by by giving a little bit, by appeasing them a little bit, no. all you've done, all you've done is given them a, a wedge, a foot in the door, and they are going to come back and use it 
to, to, to persecute you and to try and gag anyone that doesn't agree to them with them. And you're 100% right. I, I have never, you know, one of the things that journalists always ask me when we launched the Consumers First initiative of our, you know, it's our ongoing multi-million dollar ad campaign against corporations going woke to distract from their misdeeds in the market is they say, oh, so you don't think, you know, companies should be able to engage in politics. And I said, no, I think they ought not engage in politics that's not germane to their business. Precisely. In other words, I think it's even sometimes in consumers' interests for them to engage in politics to defend from increases in taxes that they would have to pass along to consumers and that kind of thing. But they are misusing corporate assets when they go and, and engage in politics that has nothing to do with their, as you said, their core business. Yeah, and that is exactly, to your point about it being an inversion, that is exactly what these uh, uh, ESG practitioners want. They want them to do less of, of defending of, their interests in, right. in politics. They, they, they want them to stop consumers and affects their core business. And more right. of the misusing of corporate assets that has nothing to do with anything except pushing a progressive left uh, uh, political agenda. They want them to stop doing the only politics they should be doing. Exactly. Which is, that, which exactly. is in, in the interest. I remember having a meeting with, uh, I think it was Target, Investor Relations. And, you know, I had shareholders who were concerned about their politicking. And they said, well, you know, here's what we do. We, you know, we weigh in on, you know, land usage and water usage and, um, you know, sales taxes and property taxes. And it's like, come on. You know that nobody, my shareholders, the shareholders who asked me to talk to you, they're not concerned about Target weighing in on sales taxes. Let me assure you. Go for it. They're they're weighing in on banning a book that's skeptical about sexual reassignment surgery for minors. They're worried about endorsing legislation that guts the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That you know, that what we're concerned about is the stuff that has nothing to do with your business. Um and it's well, I you know, we've said it and I, I think probably this is a, that's a great point you made. They thought that they were making a commitment to get them to go away. So it's like the toddler says, "Give me a cookie." Here's the cookie. I'm done. Oh no no, you, you're just getting started. So say no earlier rather than later. Before they're all before they're all empowered. And so this year, I'm seeing so many congruency proposals on the ballot. And they're all about what you said. You said this on net zero, or you said this on gender equality, or you said this on LGBTQ, or you said this on stakeholder capitalism, but you're not living up to the promise you made. We actually expect you to do the things that you said. And what defense does a company have? uh, Sometimes I'm tempted to vote yes on these. Just to say to the company, you said it. You said you're gonna bring racial harmony to the world. Okay, I want the report <laughs> that shows whether you've done it or not. So, uh, Yummy, be careful what you promise, uh, because these groups are unappeasable, which I guess is the point you're making. Yeah, 100%. And unfortunately, corporate America has done the easy thing instead of the right thing for over a decade now. And I do agree, sometimes it is satisfying to watch them uh, squirm when they've worked themselves into a, a, an indefensible position. Uh, that said, I think what we need to do is have them, I know you were being tongue in cheek, but what we need to do is make them uh, uh, renounce the commitments that they've made that are not in line with their fiduciary duty to their shareholders or their social responsibility to serve consumers. Um, I know you're familiar with with, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. One of the things I like in his book, Woke Inc., is he talks about where the, the corporate structure came from. 
And it was not, it, you know, it didn't come down, you know, it wasn't, Moses didn't bring it down on the tablets from, from the mountain, from God. Uh, it was a social construct. The left loves bringing that up. So let me, let me say it's a social construct that we created, okay, to provide goods and services in, in the world. And we realized that it was a very, very useful tool. It, like, it allowed people to better serve consumers. And allowed a lot of people to invest safely in a way that they did, they knew that they wouldn't have like liabilities coming back on them because they invested in a bank or something like that, right? Right. right. So so it is something that um, it has a dual purpose already, and it has a very important and a noble dual purpose because it is both supposed to make people rich, but is also supposed to make increase our standard of living when we serve consumers. Which obviously, as a consumer group, is what is what consumers research cares about, and what these folks want to do. Is is go away from that and turn it into hijack it basically hmm. and turn it into just anything they they want it to be with the stakeholder model. I know I'm, I'm uh, don't want to loop around back on that. We I think we've made those points, but you're 100 correct. It it is it is a um, is an inversion of what they should be doing. Well, I agree that Moses didn't bring the corporate publicly traded corporate structure down from Mount Sinai, but he did bring Ten Commandments. And one of them, the eighth, says thou shalt not steal. And another of them, the ninth, says thou shalt not bear false witness. And it seems to me that a publicly traded company that uses shareholder money uh, in ways that do not benefit the shareholder, but benefits, say, the reputation of the CEO at their expense, although doesn't meet the legal definition of theft, I think does meet the moral definition of theft. It's somebody else's property. And a company... But just by being a publicly traded company has already committed itself to a fiduciary duty and being in an ERISA plan that's the you know, that's under the rules for retirement has doubly committed itself to a fiduciary responsibility, um, which is to put shareholders first. And if they don't, then they're they're violating the ninth commandment. So corporations, you know, I, I think it is it's a great it's a great social structure. But but like all of them, right? If it if it sets aside the you know the moral law in this particular case, it owes shareholders fidelity, and it owes shareholders the use of assets. You know, economists call this agency risk, right? That you hire a manager to manage your assets, but if they use it for their own benefit, in fact, there's a New Testament parable about it, the parable of the un, unfaithful steward. Um, if you if you use the owner's assets for your own benefit, then I think Moses might have something to say. I mean, we'll meet him someday and we can ask. Um, not too soon, I hope. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think Moses does have relevance for us, at least. Absolutely. And I want to be very clear here so I'm not taken out of context. I think that the corporate structure is incredibly useful and needs to be followed. And that's actually my point. Not that it's arbitrary or not useful in this in this instance. Meaning we have given the corporate officers and the corporate boards a fiduciary duty to keep them honest and to keep them from stealing. And I would go as far to say that if you are not following your fiduciary duty when it comes to the expense, you know, the use of corporate assets, you are violating uh, thou shalt not steal. You yeah. are using assets Absolutely. just because you're not putting it in your own pocket. Right. You are out spending money, corporate resources. You are burning through goodwill even yes. uh, when using your brand to tick off half the country. Um, when you're doing that just for your own personal enrichment, even, even just for your own personal pride, that is stealing. You are stealing from the shareholders yes. and you are taking, and this was my point with the corporate structure. We right. created that to focus the corporation on serving customers. That's what, that's the social purpose that it provides. 
And so when you, when you take the, the corporation's focus away from not only providing value to shareholders, but for providing goods and services to consumers, you are stealing from both groups. And I do think, uh, I, I think it is illegal. I think it's immoral. Yes. Uh, and um, I'm happy to, you know, to, to say that publicly. If, if people like BlackRock and uh, others would like to, to sue me for accusing them of, of breach of fiduciary duty, they're welcome to do so. I'd love to see them in court on that because I think it's, the evidence is very clear. Uh, and I will say this. When you've got the asset managers at the top, okay, using assets that don't belong to them, yes, right? Yes. Directly, they are they are a steward, they are a fiduciary, a steward to, to then push corporations to use assets that again don't belong to them, okay, for for their own for these far left progressive politics. You have a violation of fiduciary duty at, at multiple levels. levels. That's at right. Two levels. Yes, right? you have. You have. So the... it's both at the asset manager level and at the at the corporate officer level. Um, and, and that's how we get these, these crummy results for consumers that we're, that we're seeing today. Yeah, you have the agency risk at, at two levels. And I think the bigger the aggregator, the, the more you have that. And you're right. They, they're, they're taking value. That might not be pocketing cash, but they're pocketing reputation, right? Um, you know, they're, they're essentially putting they're, – they're buying reputational capital or legacy with somebody else's money. And that, that, that doesn't even matter. I'm not talking about the actual cash expenditure on this politics. They have a brand, and that brand has financial value. And if it doesn't, well, then you better take it out of your goodwill account in your accounting. Take it out of gap. If, you, if, if that brand isn't an asset, then let's have the write down right now in your quarterly report. If that does have value, Every time you degrade it by chasing some political cause that ha then six months later is going to you know, tick off half the country, then you have converted assets to your, to your own usage. All right. So um, we recently had a kind of a hubbub over um, ESG where the Biden administration tried to change the rules uh, in essence. Um, the Trump administration tried to essentially reaffirm the rules as they've always been, which is fiduciary responsibility. Um, and then the Biden administration came along and said, oh, no, you can use ESG factors in fiduciary accounts, even if you haven't demonstrated that they're additive. I mean, I should point out the Trump rule didn't say you can't use ESG. It said you can't use ESG unless you can present the argument that it's helpful to the customer. Um, so nobody forbade ESG. They just forbade the use of ESG for non-fiduciary purposes. Um, and then Congress passed something to override that. I know I've seen you say, say a lot about that on TV. Is there anything you want to say about that here today? I, that's an ongoing situation. Yeah, I think, I think it's an important uh, thing that Congress did. I think it's notable that, that it was the first bipartisan act of the new Congress. Um, Senators Manchin and Tester, both from states whose economies are under siege from ESG, uh, voted with Republicans to what's called the Congressional Review Act. In other words, if, if both chambers and the president um, agree, they can overturn uh, an enacted agency rule. In this case, obviously, Biden vetoed it, uh, unsurprisingly, since ESG is effectively a stalking horse for the far left. But I do think it is an indication that it was, since it was passed in a bipartisan way, that people are realizing this doesn't help the middle of the country. If you're not New York or California or New Jersey, this doesn't do anything for your economy. It hurts you. Uh, and increasingly, I think you're going to see states like West Virginia, like Montana, whose economies are hurt and targeted by ESG. Their representatives, regardless of, of party or stripe, are going to start to lose their patience hmm. with, with ESG. And I think it's an incredible signal that the new Congress, at least on the Republican side, is taking, taking the threat of ESG very seriously. 
-hmm. Obviously, because Biden vetoed it, the net effect of the CRA in real terms is is not going to go into effect. But I think it's a good indication that representatives are taking it seriously. And I think it is important, though, that we hold our representatives accountable to take further action. Now, legislation is probably not going to pass with the divided Congress that we've currently gotten uh, got right now. But there's a ton of oversight that could be done. And there's a ton of agencies that have been pushing ESG that could be brought in to explain their reasoning and the ways in which they are pushing companies to violate the fiduciary duty. And so I think we need to definitely keep Congress accountable, keep especially the House Republicans accountable to to move forward on that and not just rest on their laurels of the CRA action. Yeah, I I think that um, region is is probably the major driver, an energy producing state right a senator even a democratic senator is probably going to be skeptical about ESG and i'd like to add another layer to that i'm here in western pennsylvania i'm in pittsburgh area so stone's throw from west virginia um and so my area is historically union democrats union democrats are pro pension i mean these are the people who helped give us the erisa rules the basic idea is the robber barons shouldn't be able to steal the pensions you know a good friend of mine a labor priest Father Jay went to jail fighting for steel worker pensions because the steel company went bankrupt to get out of pension obligations. What the heck has happened to the pension Democrats? Because that used to be a core issue for the Democratic Party uh, and its alignment with unions, which is don't mess with the pension. And at this point, they've decided that BlackRock being able to charge extra fees, and by the way, it's not just BlackRock that's doing this. Vanguard votes worse than BlackRock probably. Um, State Street, I haven't looked at them recently, but they're all, all the biggies are voting the same way. They're, when, they're, when it was their interest versus retirees, the party almost exclusively went with the asset managers. They went with Wall Street asset managers over retirees. But that's jaw-dropping to me. And I'm not, some, some people's not, they might say, well, Democrats, that's what Democrats are. I grew up around Democrats that weren't that. I grew up around Democrats who really did care about pensions. I just don't know where they are anymore. I mean, there's Joe Manchin. There's a few, but that doesn't seem to be the core of the party anymore. Yeah, they're effectively holdovers from the old form of the party. Um, And this gets kind of out of ESG and into the question of political coalitions. But since we're going a little bit on that tangent, I'll just say I think this is a consequence of of the Schumer strategy. You know, he said publicly that they were basically going to abandon portions of the working class in order to focus on the professional managerial class. And their calculation was that for every you know, working class person that they lost, they would get, you know, one and a half or two, you know, votes in the in the suburbs from the type of people who work at asset management companies. Mm. So it's not really surprising to me at this point that they've abandoned um, uh, the union protection, you know, that, that they that they fought so hard to keep people from misusing these pension funds. I think what I would just say to your listeners is that if you're a member of a union, you need to understand that as much as they may signal uh, that you know the Democratic Party has your back. They are making it very clear in their actual actions, rather than their talk, that they don't. Hmm. And so you might want to reconsider if you've been a, a lifelong Democrat. Uh, really look at what they're doing with your pensions. As you said, ERISA was a hard-fought protection for government pen- or uh, for uh, private pensions from you know, everything from railroads to mines to every other private company in the United States. And these were really good protections. It was a str- it was a strict fiduciary rule to keep people from embezzling or misusing your money. Right. And the Biden administration has intentionally loosened. When you hear, when you, they, they want to say that this is about investing freedom. They, they want to say that this is so asset managers can go and look for innovative ways to find returns. 
What it, that, that's not the case. That's not the, the the Trump era rule. Basically, said you can look for returns however you want, but it, you need to be looking for returns. Yes, not for political uh, points or projects or pushing a platform. And and now the Biden the Biden administration is basically saying you can use your pension, you can use these pensions however you want. So as you as a as a as a as a union member or a pension holder, think long and hard about how how much these people have your interests in mind if they want to free up. Billionaire Wall Street fat cats like Larry Fink at BlackRock and the other asset managers to just do whatever they want with your pensions. How much does that reflect their concern for your well-being? It's not the new Democratic Party. So I know you worked, I I believe you worked on an an ESG explainer with my friend Derek Kreifels over at State Financial Officers Foundation. Uh, Is it Our Money, Our Values? Is that right? Yeah, uh, Our Money, Our Values. Yes, right. So that basically, because there might, look, my listeners know what ESG is, right? We we do this stuff a lot, but not everyone does. So that's that's a that's a good resource, I think, for somebody who wants to explain it to somebody who doesn't understand. Because I think there's a lot of people with like, oh, I'm hearing about ESG and I'm hearing it's bad. I want it, but I don't actually know what it is. Is that is that where you would send them so they could basically an ordinary person who's not into finance could understand what this is all about? Yeah, absolutely. That was we we built that intentionally to be something that the average person could could uh, you know start to to wrap their mind around ESG. I certainly sympathize. Uh, it's not an e- easy issue to explain, um, and I will even say there's really there's kind of two kinds of ESG. Even um, you know one kind of ESG is when you know the ESG is like on the tin, it's like on the label, and you know you're buying an ESG fund. Um, and while I might have problems with some of the ways that those funds are marketed, I, you know, we're, a, we're not a paternalistic consumer protection organization. We believe people should be equipped with information to make decisions, but then they, uh, you know, the most protected consumer is a savvy, educated consumer, and they should be able to f- free to do with their money as they please. So I might have problems with ESG funds that are explicitly labeled that way, but that's actually a small portion of the universe of ESG investing, and the rest of it is even more nefarious. So when you go and buy, for example, an index fund at BlackRock or State Street or Vanguard, let's take the iShares, that's the BlackRock's brand, uh, iShares S&P 500 fund. It's the most vanilla investment you can make, at least on the label. You're just buying the S&P 500 index, right? Right. They're not making any investment decisions for you. You're just buying an index. Well, you are actually buying an ESG fund because yes. what happens when you give your money to BlackRock and they go and buy those shares on your behalf, they go and they brag about this. They call it corporate engagements. They go and have thousands of meetings with corporate America throughout the year. And they walk in and they say, hey, we have 8% of your company, 10% of your company, 15% of your company. And included in that is your shares from your S&P 500 index fund. Yes. And they say, here's what we'd like to see because we own so much of your company. Net zero targets, racial and sex quotas for your board. I mean, Larry Fink bragged about this Okay, in 2017. In an interview with the New York Times, he said, in, in BlackRock, we believe uh, for behaviors to change, they're going to have to be forced to change in terms of racial and sex quotas on boards. Mm-hmm. And at BlackRock, we are forcing behaviors. Okay, And he's doing it with your money, even when you haven't bought an ESG fund. So if you have any money with BlackRock, you are in an ESG fund effectively because it's being used to lobby and, and, and bludgeon and bully corporate America into yes. pushing ESG objectives. And that's what these asset managers do with 
local and state and federal pension funds, 401ks, even when you aren't in an ESG fund. So when you're talking to your financial Pretty much any of the really major asset managers are ESG funds. Exactly, exactly. So you need to be very careful when you give your money to these asset managers. Obviously, the second question that I always get is, okay, where can I put my money? Um, And there are obviously uh, market alternatives that have popped up, people like Strive. There's a company called Second Vote. Uh, yeah. that allows you to get your money out of out of this kind of nonsense, but also just moving to some of the ones that aren't the big three notorious ones, moving to people like Charles Schwab. Uh, doesn't have a perfect record, but a much, much better record than Vanguard or State Street or BlackRock. Yes, yes. Um, well, someone, maybe I should put in some uh, free advertisement for some of the other folks who are in that space as well, but uh, I'll, I'll do that I'll do that another time. Um, I, you know, I guess the other um, issue is that because of that engagement issue, by the way, it's fine that you mentioned Strive and Second Vote. That, that's no problem. Um, great folks. American Conservative Values is another one that we've interviewed. Biden Funds. There's a lot of good folks out there who are doing this. Um, and and I talked to all of them. Yeah, the, um, the engagement is important because what I'm seeing is the, the treasurers are pushing back and saying, wait a minute, BlackRock. We don't we, we don't want our money used this way. And BlackRock is saying, okay, we got a special carve out for special institutions like you. We're going to give you your vote back. Now, they're not really giving your vote back because they're giving them a default, which is based on the proxy services, which may well be voting to the left of BlackRock. But let's say it was the Boyer research proxy policy, which there is one, um, you know, which is definitely – you know, shareholder centric doesn't matter because most of the action is in the engagement anyway. Most of the action isn't in the vote. So Mr. Red State or Mrs. Red State Treasurer may have gotten the vote back, but they didn't get the power back because the lobbying is where the game is really played. Yeah, you're 100 percent correct. Just getting your votes back doesn't doesn't solve the problem. It's a great start. And I think it's a signal to corporate America that when they get meetings with BlackRock or, or calls from Vanguard or State Street, that maybe those people don't have as much power and influence as they might be representing that they do currently. So I do think that getting the votes back is a good start. I will say this, BlackRock is you know running around claiming that they're democratizing this and handing votes back to people. They're not. They're giving people a choice of sort of a lens uh, that range that, that could be used to, to vote their proxies. And it, the lens, you know, spectrum that you have to yes. select from is sort of from center left to far left. So it's, that, that's it's it. not like it's not like they're coming in and going, how do you want to vote on proposal number 43? And how do you want to pro-? that's not what's happening. No, what no, saying no. Is that we will give you a, a, a framework. You select the framework and then we'll vote your way. So they, they are playing a shell game with and they're lying about what. what right. And doing. I've looked at a lot of those frameworks. I remember when I first right. started talking, right, <laughs> just like, OK, the ESG was the conservative one. And then on they go leftward. OK, well, but, but you're right. But you're right. What we really need to do is take away their power to walk into these boardrooms and talk about how much of the, the stock that they own and how much they can bully these corporations. And when we when we do that, they will they will cease to matter. Uh, by, by the way, when people mention, you know, what can I do? There's direct indexing. There's not been a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of people out there saying, well, buy my conservative fund. But with direct indexing, you actually take it back. You own the shares because with technology now, you can own fractional shares and you can actually literally take your vote back. We should probably do a whole show on that. Well, Hild from Consumers Research, um, anything else you want to say before we let you go? I, th- I found this very helpful, very informative. Really appreciate the work that you're doing, the videos that you're putting out there, the commercials. They are putting, you know, they're putting this at the top of the agenda. You're hitting back hard on this. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to touch on before we say goodbye? 
Yeah, if we've got a couple, uh, couple, one more minute, I would just say that right now in about 20 to 25 states, you have legislation moving through your states that would start to erode the power of these asset managers to use your money against your interests. So two of those models, one strengthens the fiduciary duty. It's basically based on the Trump era Department of Labor rule that we, we talked about earlier, simply makes it very explicit in the fiduciary duty when it comes to managing your state's pension funds that they can't include a bunch of, of, of factors that aren't that don't uh, uh, aren't pecuniary don't don't look at the, the returns of shareholders and then the other thing is is it's modeled after uh, um, its legislation modeled after what Texas and West Virginia and Tennessee and some other states have done basically says if your company has a policy of trying to destroy one of our state's most important industries so that could be fossil fuels could be AG could be gun rights for example we're going to stop doing business with you we're not going to pay you to undermine our interests. And so you've seen a lot of states pass this. Every state can put in what they want uh, that's important to them. This is not just fossil fuels that are being targeted by ESG. It's, like I said, it's agriculture, mining, manufacturing, gun rights, um, pro, pro-life pro issues. Um, and so if, you know, your listeners, the extent that they, you know, you want to get involved, please call your local, your state and, and uh, your state representatives, your state officers, your governors, your, your attorney generals, and just let them know you care about this issue. As, if you've noted, this is kind of a wonky thing. Uh, it's not a, it's not an easy issue to discuss. Right. And so your representatives really look to you to hear from their 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 voters. You know, what are the issues they care about? And so calling them and saying, hey, I really want you to do something about this. I don't want our state's money, my yeah. money used against my own interests. And, and so financial I, officers, be a great they, they financial officers don't hear that much from constituents like governors. No, no. right. The treasurer the last and... four or five years. It's been a very sleepy. Usually it's kind of in you become treasurer and then that's like your stepping stone to being governors or, or attorney general or something like that. Right. And right. it's been great to see, you know, what has been a generally sleepy role really, really come into the fore and say, no, we are the state's fiduciary. Uh, we have a, a responsibility to protect uh, our state's assets from being misused, but you're 100 right. They don't often hear from from their constituents, and it's yeah, no an important one, no, issue to contact. No them one out. thought about them. No one was thinking right. that they were like unexpected. You know, it's like right. in some of this like Mordor battles. Like, wait, who's that? You know, some <laughs> some other army showed up that someone didn't even know existed. You know, exactly. these people in these boring treasure. Sorry, you know, Allison Ball, you're not boring, but you know, I mean, <laughs> these, these boring jobs uh, all of a sudden are really exciting, and they took their oath of office seriously. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's been, that's exactly right. It's been, it's been encouraging to see how, um, how serious they have taken their oath of office. And so I would just ask, show them some love, show your governor some love, your attorney generals and your, and your uh, state, you know, congressmen and senators, you know, call them and encourage them in their work because you might think, oh, they're just up there. They'll do the right thing. Well, they don't, you know, they don't, there's always, you know, a million priorities. And so when you, when you call them, it helps them understand how important this issue is to you. Will Hild from Consumers Research, consumersresearch.org. Thanks so much for being with us on Meeting of Minds. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.